1: I'm Rob Fain for Simi. Good morning. I hope you're doing well wherever I find you. Happy Friday. Ready for the weekend for those of us who uh, do the Monday to Friday thing. What is predictive processing and do self-fulfilling prophecies actually shape our reality? I know what you're thinking. Well, what are you talking about, Rob? To break this down, Dr. Andy Clark joins us, professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex and also the author of The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. Dr. Clark, good morning. Good morning. Well, let's get into this. I'm going to ask you the most basic and rudimentary of questions. What are we talking about when we're describing predictive processing?
2: Yeah, it's a a good question. Um, I'm I'm delighted to be here to, uh, to talk about this. So you might think that because of that word prediction, it's all about staying ahead of the game, looking at the future. But a lot of it is about predicting the present. So it's about using what your brain already knows to improve what you currently see, hear, touch, and feel. And a kind of example that I like to give here is, think about being in the shower and hearing a song that you know playing on the radio versus a song that you don't know. The song that you know will sound really an awful lot clearer. You'll be able to spot the the lyrics and the spaces between the words. The unfamiliar song sounds so much worse. I think this is what good prediction does for our grip on reality, it kind of brings things into focus, and it also puts what we know, or what we sorry, what we're getting in from the world in terms of raw sensory signals, in touch with what we already know about the world, and that's hugely important. Think about hearing the words in a language you know versus the words in a language you don't. So they're the two they're the two big things. I think it's kind of cleaning up a noisy sensory signal by using knowledge, and it's put in that sensory signal in touch with what you know so that you can see what's important and what isn't there's a little sideline here about efficiency as well but mm. we can uh, we can perhaps leave that for later
1: well, one of the things that I found interesting as I was starting to skate around this is the goals of, you know, trying to have predictive processing work for us as humans, because the main goal of a predictive brain, I would assume, is to help us stay alive. So when we're thinking of basic yeah. needs like food and water, I would assume we kind of branch out from that. But is that essentially the epicenter is something that helps us live? Yes,
2: I think that's right. I mean, it's um, basically we, we, we predict that we will inhabit the kind of situations that enable us to be alive as the sort of organisms that we are, and we then preferentially act so as to find ourselves in those situations. So a lot of the predictions are inward-looking, if you like, but everything that we see around us in the world is constantly in touch with those inward-looking predictions, and I think this gives a sense of mattering and affect to our experiences of the world.
1: I think what I I, all my roads in this conversation are going to eventually lead back to artificial intelligence, because right now we're talking about the human brain and we're talking about things that, you know, we're trying to do to survive and and build and, and, you know, filter out things that we don't need and keep things that we do need. But when you think of artificial intelligence, how influential is this on the potential for that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So, of course, you know, there's all the current ongoing fuss about chat GPT and so on. And those systems are predictive. But, of course, what they're predicting is basically bunches of text. So they learn how to predict the next word in sentences effectively. Um, That's very different, I think, to be in a sort of prediction system, which is controlling actions by making predictions about what sensory experiences you want to be um, getting next, in effect. So there's something very different about the way that these systems, which are studied in in artificial intelligence as well, go about um, using prediction, if you like. There's something much more biologically realistic about what predictive processing systems do. And, of course, that's cashed out because these systems have, um, or rather the elements of these systems have implementations in the brain. We kind of know how the brain sort of gets to do a lot of this stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, it's early days for artificial intelligence in some ways. My guess is that to get beyond the glass ceilings that we're currently seeing, um, we probably will need to do something a bit more biologically realistic, a bit more like the predictive processing
1: uh, approaches. <laughs> He is Dr. Andy Clark, Professor of Cognitive Philosophy at the University of Sussex. Uh, doctor, why should we focus on understanding this theory? And, and the reason that I ask that question is I think of things where this might be beneficial in everything from, you know, efforting towards a cure for Parkinson's or psychosis. I mean, there are obviously things there that this might actually benefit if we can unlock some doors.
2: Yes, I think that's exactly right. So, the, you know, the big attraction for me is that there's a whole new way here of approaching psychiatry in effect uh, a sort of subdiscipline now called computational psychiatry because one thing that the brain's doing all the time according to these accounts is estimating how much weight to put on the predictions versus the current sensory evidence and if that weighting mechanism behaves differently or goes wrong then of course all kinds of things will will follow you know it'll be the sort of brain equivalent of fake news. You'll be taking stuff very seriously Mm. that you shouldn't be taking seriously, um, and so on. So there are really exciting accounts of things like autism spectrum condition, which looks like it might involve putting a lot of weight on the sensory signal. So you have a kind of enhanced sensory signal, and maybe a slightly dampened effect of some of the predictions. This gets to grips with quite a lot of the, the, the profile there. So I think we may be heading towards something like a sort of periodic table of experiential variation where we can begin to sort of see how neurotypical and less neurotypical response kind of follows from differently adjusting the knobs and dials on a predictive processing system.
1: I smell another book in your future, doctor. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, I tell you, thank you for indulging this conversation with me more than anything. Thank you for the expertise on this. I I do appreciate it. And hopefully we will get the chance to talk again.
2: Well, thanks ever so much. It's been a pleasure talking.
1: Thank you. He is Dr. Andy Clark, Professor of Cognitive Philosophy at the University of Sussex, also author of The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. That, to me, is really engaging, just that final point there, in the fact that we might be able to unlock some doors, because I know that there's a lot of people out there with Parkinson's, uh, families all affected by that. What can we do here? So that we're trying to find scientific evidence that can actually help push these things forward when it comes to their um, pain reprocessing therapies and how we might actually be able to hack that predictive machinery. I think that's really cool. That's fun stuff.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm Rob Fain for Simi. Good morning. I hope I find you well wherever you are. Happy Friday as well. We made it. We're almost at the weekend. Uh, Calgary Stampede is happening. And I'm a big fan of the Calgary Stampede. You know over a million people are going to truck through there over the next 10 days. That is, a whopping amount of people who are expecting to see all kinds of things, you know, Western heritage, they're going to drink the beer, eat the food. They call it the greatest outdoor show on Earth, which is, you know, a pretty big thing to say, but let's go to Calgary, Dallas Flexhog, Global Calgary TV morning show news anchor, Kind enough to join me, Dallas, good morning. Good morning to you. Well, let's talk about this because it's obviously a big to-do, the greatest show on earth. How many people are going to be lining that parade route as things kick off?
3: Well, I can tell you, I'm sitting along a parade route right underneath the Calgary Tower right now. Uh, There are already a couple, oh, several thousand people here. Last year, there was over 305,000 people in person. Uh, lining the route of the parade. Uh, we've had a prime minister sighting last night. is uh, not going to be in the parade, but he's going to be at the stampede grounds this year. We know a federal conservative leader um, Pierre, uh, Pierre Polyev is, is riding in the parade this year. We've got 94 other floats and, of course, our stampede parade marshal, uh, Jeremy Hansen, the Canadian Space Agency astronaut, who will be leading the way for us today. But uh, I wish I could share give you a show and tell here there are thousands of people i see disney princesses right now i see lots of cowboy hats i see lots of color and they do call it the greatest outdoor show on earth for a reason we are also celebrating 100 years of chuck wagons 100 years of pancake breakfasts. and you said you were a fan of the stampede so i'm wondering how many pancakes you've eaten in the city here before
1: well i i i for the stuff that i remember (laughs) that might be the best way to describe it um is the weather going to be an issue today
3: Well, classic Stampede weather um, is hot and then wet and then hot again. We saw a big storm last night in the city and it drenched the parade route. The roads are dry right now. We saw some hail in the city. So people just need to be prepared for that if they're headed down here. We are not expecting it to rain on our parade, which is what we always cross our fingers for this morning to help us kick off the greatest outdoor show on earth.
1: You know, I, I think of pancakes, but I also think of barbecue. Are there some of the quirky, uh, what are some of the quirky items we might see at the Stampede this year?
3: Well, everyone's talking about uh, the ketchup ice cream and the mustard ice cream. Oh, so no. Of a- <laughs> Last year we had craft Dinner ice cream, so I think it's along the lines of that. We have a peanut butter pickle dog. So lots of like mixing sweet with salty. What about a neon hot dog? If you want some electric blue in your guts, that might be a more your thing. Or how about a dill pickle sugar cookie tossed with flaming hot Cheetos icing? Anything sound good there?
1: Yeah, so far you're striking out with me on the on the food front. The neon hot dog might be the one that I surely stay away from. But uh, oh, that, you know what? But that's, that's part of the fun and the allure of the Stampede, isn't it?
3: It really is. And international travel is back this year. We've got uh, our hotels are 90% full right now. Um, We're having international bands in our parade this year for the first time since COVID. So we've got entries from Denmark and all over the US and Canada speaking to some tourists from. Ontario today so it's really nice to see the city come alive again in a way that uh, you know we had Kevin Costner leading the parade last year so it was really exciting but just that adding that extra international element once again is just really something we're embracing this year
1: oh I'm so excited I was just in Calgary a couple of weeks ago for a basketball game and I, th- I fell in love with your city within minutes and I know this is a big deal so go have some fun and Dallas let's talk again soon thank you for your time this morning Thanks so much. Yahoo. Uh, All right. Enjoy Yahoo. Dallas Flex Global Calgary TV morning show anchor stopping by here on mornings with Simi. Uh, I'll tell you what, ketchup ice cream and mustard ice cream. That's a hard. No. (laughs) Would you even try that? I guess it'd be worth like, you know, you you know, you take that like baby scoop off of the small, you know, wooden spoon. No, like that. and, And a neon hot dog where they inject dye into it. No. What was it, pickles and, and peanut butter? No. I. True story, before we go to the break here, I had, for the first time the other night, banana on a pizza. And you're going to hate me for saying this. It was awesome. But maybe, okay, so maybe I should do the ketchup ice cream. Maybe I've just talked myself back into it. You listening have just heard me do a full 180 on my food preferences. Yeah, it is what it is.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Rob Fain for Simi. Good morning. You know what? I just sit back sometimes, and I'm like, the politics in this province are really something else. And I've only dipped my toe into the world of news periodically. But to a man that has had his finger on the pulse of this province for years, I can only imagine what he thinks when he wakes up and sees the laundry list of things that we could talk about today. For said laundry list, let's go to Victoria, kind enough to be joined by Von Palmer. Von, good morning.
4: And good morning, Rob, and you are right, BC Politics is very generous in terms of material. What can I say? Where shall we start as usual?
1: Well, I think we should start with the overrun right now on that NDP Hospital project because Adrian Dix had no problem talking about it, but now we're looking at an overrun.
4: Yeah, so you got another overrun on a NDP Hospital project, and and I would say just in terms of the public awareness The most annoying thing about this is they announced last week, Adrian Dix announced the start of construction on a new hospital in Dawson Creek. And he announced the price tag and he announced the date when the hospital will be taking patients. But what he didn't acknowledge in his news release, Rob, is the project is 56% 56 over budget and two years behind schedule. And we know that if we read the previous press releases. You know, when there's an overrun and you're behind schedule, it strikes me that the right thing to do, since it's public money, is to acknowledge it and explain what happened. They didn't do either. So we've got a project, as I said, it's now $590 million. It was considerably less in January of this year. That's when the previous numbers were put out. And it's going to be open in 2025, 2027, taking patients instead of 2025. So you have to go back to the record, Rob, to find out what happened here. Uh, And I can give you the overview. Uh, The first thing is they picked a bidder. uh, They picked a proponent, couldn't reach a final deal with them, dumped them, had to go back to somebody else on the previous shortlist, That bidder came back with a much higher price tag, and the (laughs) government had no choice but to take it. The other thing they did here, which is just to me a sign of mismanagement, um, they quietly increased the floor space of the project uh, 25% by a quarter. Like they added. Hmm. Thousands of square meters of space, and they didn't increase the number of beds for patients, they didn't expand the ER, so there's no idea what they need the extra space for, no explanation for that. You know, and, and in January, they said the design was 60% complete. So, when your design is 60% complete, and you've already spent a year negotiating with the bidder, you dump the bidder, you change the design, is it surprising the project's more expensive?
1: Not where I'm from. I, I mean that's uh, Vaughn. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's just good old fashioned botched negotiations
4: and man and mismanagement. I mean, yeah. imagine you're the other bidder here, the one that was dropped. They were they were dumped because their price tag was too high, and then a year and a half later, they come back to you and say, um, <clears throat> actually, we'd like you to, we'd like you to submit <laughs> a new bid." Uh, one imagines the bidder is a is a company, Graham Design, that is built hospitals all over Canada right so they know what they're doing and they probably had a more realistic sense than the government of what it was going to cost to build this thing anyway so they come back with a much higher price tag and the government has no choice but to accept it the government also increases floor space by 25% when the design was already 60% complete so it's not just bad negotiating it's a kind of a reckless approach to management too and none of this by the way is in the press release And this isn't an exception. Yes. We had the the Cowichan District Hospital uh, went over budget uh, late last year, 68% over budget because the government changed the design and brought in a whole bunch of rules midway through the planning. Uh, And this week I see Adrian Dix has announced an expansion project uh, on the hospital in Williams Lake and that one is hmm, 68% over budget as well. Although again, that wasn't mentioned in the news release. The health ministry never tells you any of the really interesting stuff when they put out their news releases. You have to go back to the record and see what they said about the project last year to figure out that it's over budget because they don't tell you so. You know, I mean, you ask the government about this stuff, and on the rare occasions they actually admit to a budget overrun, they give you a bunch of in- inflation-related uh, excuses and supply chains and more materials and shortage of workers. All those things do happen, but they never tell you how much their own mismanagement and delays and changes late in the game added to the price tag. And that's, Rob, where I say probably, well, it would be very helpful for the Independent Auditor General to look at these overruns, because on the three hospitals I told you about, the combined overrun is almost a billion dollars. That's incredible.
1: I'm Faye for Simi. Good morning. I love when I'm filling in for a show that has a segment or two with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, because I feel like I'm always getting educated. So let's get to the headlines of the day. How about this one, Vaughn? New Democrat school trustee, political aide off the hook for serving as both a scrutiny in an election where she was also a candidate
4: in that yeah. something. It's an interesting one. So, this is the case of Dolly Dhaliwal. She's a school trustee in New West, a chair of the board out there for a time, uh, also a political staffer to Adrian Dix, who we talked about in the first segment. So, uh, election, civic election day in New West uh, last year. Uh, she goes in to vote, presumably for herself, and then she turns around and registers as a scrutineer uh, to scrutinize the results and what's going on in the polling place um that's not allowed under the local elections act uh, there was a complaint uh the complaint uh when you get a complaint against the poll i mean she won the election right and she was board chair also political staffer to adrian dick so the way our uh, prosecution system works in bc where you got somebody well connected politically or prominent politically you get a special prosecutor so special prosecutor was appointed um, she steps down as school trustee. Uh, she gets appointed to sort of a backup job with Adrian Dix. She steps down from that, and the special prosecutor goes to work. He reported out yesterday, and she's a very lucky new Democrat. He cut her some slack. He said he did not think it was in the public interest to charge her, and he did not think that the evidence met. Uh, BC's standard for laying charges, which is substantial likelihood of conviction. So she's off the hook. Now, it's interesting to see why she's off the hook. He uh, made a couple of points, but the big one is this. Uh, she didn't know it was against the law to do what she did. <laughs> and accepted her word for it. And Okay, we'll take her word for it. As She's running for office. She's Uh, been a long-time NDP staffer and aide and organizer, but she hadn't read the Elections Act, and so she didn't know that you couldn't serve, uh, that you're not allowed to serve as a scrutineer in the same election in which you're a candidate. Um, So, okay, uh, she's off the hook, she's not going to be charged. the special prosecutor notes that the uh, people in New Westminster seem to think the world of her. They elected her, although I don't know what kind of a defense that is. If she hadn't won the election, I don't think anybody would care <laughs> what she did. But anyway, she's off the hook. Uh, okay, maybe after that, the thing that you might want her to have done yesterday is to breathe a giant sigh of relief and apologize for her negligence. <laughs> nope, nope. Through her lawyer, she says she's been vindicated. Uh, vindicated,
5: Rob. If your best line of
4: defense is you didn't, you were ignorant of the law. I don't know whether that is much of a defense. Uh, I think when you get off the hook for being ignorant of the law, you're one very lucky politician. Well,
1: we talk about vindication. What are her next steps? I mean, does she go back and you know is she taking names and pointing fingers? What does what do you think's in her future?
4: Well, it'd be interesting to see what happens because. I guess she doesn't need the backup job with the provincial government anymore. I mean, it was very nice to the New Democrats when she had to step down uh, from the school board and presumably give up her school board salary. They gave her a job over here, right? So, you know, and they, they tried to get away with it and then it was pointed out to them that she's under investigation. So they had to drop her from that job as well. So I guess she doesn't need the provincial government jobs anymore. I assume that since she's off the hook, that she will go back to uh, New West School Board and uh, presumably, they elected her chair of the board. The NDP controls that board out there. So uh, presumably, she's back as school board chair, and the next civic election is a long time away. And I guess, uh, if she decides to run for office again, she might uh, want to just refresh your memory about <laughs> what the law actually says on this one. Anyway, she says she's vindicated. And over to you, people in New Westminster, maybe they figure uh, she is vindicated. They, they said that she only actually served as a scrutineer for 20 minutes. So again, uh, you know, and she's never done it before, and I assume she'll never do it again. That's vindication.
1: Huh? 20 minutes. in that something? Vaughn, thank you for this. I really appreciate you stopping by and giving us some, uh, some depth to these stories. I look forward to reading them, and uh, let's talk again soon.
4: Great, Rob. Thanks very
1: much. It's my pleasure. Vaughn Palmer, Vancouver Sun columnist, always spirited when it comes to these conversation pieces, and uh, yeah, 20 minutes as a scrutineer. I didn't even know what a scrutineer was until I looked it up before this segment.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm Rob Fay in for Simi. Good morning. Celine Dion reminds me of Las Vegas I'll be going to Las Vegas next week for a couple of days <laughs> By the way, I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day about. She goes, oh, you like that kind of music Because I'm, I'm very pop-centric, I'm not into the hard stuff And uh, I was telling her about this old song, Waiting for a Star to Fall Boy Meets Girl, and she had no clue My wife had no clue, nobody knows what I'm talking about It was a popular song, I think I know you're driving around. you like, I never heard of that either. That's okay. It's fine. I'm just saying I'm a softie and uh, the hard stuff just doesn't do anything for me. But when we talk about hard stuff, I want to get into the hard stuff of the political world south of the border uh, because there's a lot of stuff going on and some of it is just almost too good to be true. So for said stories, let's go to Global News' Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Uh Reggie, good morning. Good morning. Let's talk about cocaine at the White House.
6: I mean, it seems very TMZ-ish, but this is actually a big deal. Sure, it's a big deal. Uh it's the first time that a white powdery substance has been found in and around uh the White House grounds since the uh early two thousands and the anthrax scare. Uh and, and there are ongoing questions here, Rob. How did this kind of baggie of coke find its way into um the executive mansion at an entrance that is, you know, to the west of the building near the Oval Office, but it was found in a cubby where people have to throw their their cell phones and stuff when they're coming in for a tour. Uh I mean there have been days and days of testing being done on this little baggie they can't figure it out um and and they may not figure it out we're you know expected to get some kind of a report on on monday uh but this really is it, it's kind of gripping everyone within the white house and it is now finding itself in the middle of a political firestorm here because republicans have stepped in and said look we don't trust Secret Service right now. We need a full detailed report on this. Well, it's
1: an interesting story from the fact that I've heard that it was you know located in a couple of different places that will never truly get to the bottom of this. But you mentioned, Reggie, the political angle to this. I've seen Donald Trump on his social media just blasting the Bidens and, and, and the back and forth. How big of an issue is this or is it something that can eventually get swept under the carpet? <laughs>
6: I mean I mean look it's it's an issue because there were drugs that were found inside the White House obviously the cocaine is a, is a banned you know federal substance in the United States uh and there are questions as to why this kind of narcotic was in the building uh it, it should be pointed out secret service has come out to say look our dogs don't sniff for drugs we don't expect drugs to be in the White House and there are you know biological radiological uh, you know, machines that are in and around the White House that are constantly scanning for things like anthrax and ricin, but they're not scanning for things um like cocaine. Uh, so, you know, the, the pointed question here is, was there a Secret Service failure? And that's why Republicans in the House are now stepping up to say, we want a full report. We need to understand what the security failures are that are going on in the White House. But is this a big story? I mean, it's the slow news day of the summer. It's been like this for a couple of days besides weather stories. You have to question whether or not this would be as big of a deal if 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 somebody else was in the White House, if a different party was leading uh, uh, the House.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, OK, so you read between the same lines I do. Um, let's switch gears. We do have to talk about the Donald here and these uh, unsealed documents, newly unsealed details from the Justin Department's investigation into Donald Trump's mishandling of those classified informations. I should say alleged. Um, now there's some surveillance footage that could play a role in really doing some damage in this case.
6: Yeah, uh, and the, 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 the kind of it's not the, it's not a new indictment we're seeing. It's not a new report we're seeing. It's just less redactions in the original report. And we are understanding now uh, that, that the, the Justice Department knew more about the situation before they traveled to Mar a Lago to carry out an initial search here than we originally thought. And that's because uh, some of the uh, information that's been unredacted, some photos that are now in existence show that there were more boxes uh, in specific places of Mar a Lago. And when, federal prosecutors showed up to start doing an investigation. Those boxes weren't there. This ties into uh, the situation surrounding Trump's aide, who pleaded not guilty yesterday, and the questions of... How many boxes were moved? Where were things moved around? And what this all really comes down to is uh, more attempts for the Justice Department to blow holes into the theories that Trump and his lawyers are putting out that A, he did nothing wrong or B, he had nothing to hide or C, he was allowed to have anything that was declassified or classified because he declassified it on his own. Ultimately here, having this information from the Justice Department, at least in the eyes of special counsel, Jack Smith says, look, Our case is rock solid here. The former president was wrong for what he did, and we have more proof now to show that he was going out of his way to mislead us.
1: So Trump feeling some pressure here. The Biden administration feeling some pressure as well. A federal judge issuing a preliminary injunction ordering certain Biden administration agents and officials not to communicate with social media companies regarding the removal of content containing
6: protected free speech. Can you walk us through this? So look, this is what's being seen by Republicans as a win. uh, And it's because since kind of the beginning days of COVID, Republicans, some conservatives have come out to say that social media, uh, you know, uh, accounts or sites have been blocking or deleting or shadow banning uh, people who identify themselves with right or, you know, further than right. And essentially what we've seen with this judge here in this injunction is that members of certain government agencies like the Health and Human Services Department or the White House Press Secretary or members of the FBI and DOJ can't go over to a social media site like Twitter and flag information to them that they say could be misleading, that could present a danger to the American public. Uh, and ask them to take it down. They're allowed to do it if they think a crime may have been committed or if there's a, a national security threat. But ultimately, Republicans are saying that government interference with these social media sites is an infringement on free speech. The question is, Is it coercion or is it just the government saying, look, false information, bogus lines being tweeted out uh, could have uh, a negative impact on the broad public? This is likely something that we will see the administration um, try to appeal could find itself before the supreme court in yet another case where you know freedom of speech is going to be at the crux of an argument
1: and reggie this one uh when i first walked in this morning i said what a story this is a texas man who was reported missing as a teenager eight years ago actually returns home the next day and has been living with his mother (laughs) i mean only i i don't want to say only in texas but this story is almost surreal
6: And I mean, there's a lot of details here. Some of them are in the news. Some of them are circulating in and around the news. But ultimately, yeah, for years and years, this teenager apparently living at the home with his mother, being seen by police, giving false names and false birthdays when police were talking to him, the mother giving false information about who may have been in and around the house, even though. It's believed to have been her son. He was found on a church step uh, a couple of days ago, uh, disoriented, had some blood in his hair. Uh, you know, there are questions here as to where he's been for the last several years. There is kind of um, a person who's been associated with this case who's suggesting that the the boy was being kept in his house um, as a prisoner, that he was suffering some kind of abuse. The 25-year-old says, look, none of that was happening and no charges have been laid against anyone. But there are way more questions than there are answers about perception. what was going on what happened over the last eight years and whether somebody here may have dropped the ball given the fact so many people saw this this boy at the time coming in and out of the house and nobody went to police by saying "Mm, we think he's actually there
1: it's an unbelievable story reggie thank you for getting us caught up with everything south of the border i do appreciate your time today and have a good one thanks
0: this is mornings with simi
1: Good morning. I'm Rob Fay, filling in for Simi. I hope you're doing well, getting ready for the weekend, and it is a very busy weekend around town. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're going to see wrestling. Maybe you're going to see soccer. Who knows what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, I hope you're uh, safe and enjoying it and you're getting through the heat. You know, one of the things initiative wise that is going on in the city in the next couple of hours, kicking it with the Caps and Queens. I think it's a great initiative between the Vancouver Whitecaps. And uh, you know what? This is one of the things that outside BC Place, I think, creates the energy, creates the buzz. You got a big Cascadia Cup clash between Vancouver and Seattle. The kickoff is at 730. By the way, I think we're, we got some tickets for that before everything's said and done in this show. But uh, I want to talk more about what's happening before the show. Vancouver's largest drag happy hour will take place out front of BC Place. And uh, a person that I've spoken to already about this, Cynthia Kiss, I guess backed by popular demand, welcome to the show. You can't get rid of me. How are we doing this morning? <laughs> the same as last week. Fantastic. And, you know, our conversation last week, we were just touching on the basics of it. And I, I will want that from you. But more than anything, you've been working hard on this. It's an obviously uh, really big deal. But what's it like getting the support from the Whitecaps for this initiative
7: well it just means so much more now than ever obviously we've seen um, in america what's happening with legislation they're trying to ban drag this is my line of work and so having you know mainstream organizations such as the white caps stand by the queer community it just means so much because it's demystifying drag i think sometimes when people don't understand something they just want to do away with it and This is a chance to educate people. So I'm I'm honored and super flattered to be part of it. And
1: I think when people will be walking through and and seeing everything that's going on, I think they're going to be amazed by the spectacle of it, because obviously when you guys do a drag show, you guys do it big and bold and out there. And I think people are really going to see that side of uh, a community that is really, really special.
7: Absolutely. I think when people say they don't like drag, they've just never been to a drag show. <laughs> like that's, the, that's the honest truth. If you go to a drag brunch, you know, you leave happier than you ever thought you could be. It's just people wanting to put on a great show and be entertainers. You know, we've got Batty Banks, BB So Fresh, Genesis, Jerry Lynn Spears, Karajuku, Tiffany and Co. There are so many queens that are going to be performing. You can't not like at least one of them. So you're
1: the host for the Caps and Queens. You're also a contestant on season two of Canada's Drag Race. That may be where a few of our listeners recognize your name from. How did you come up with the name Cynthia Kiss?
7: I came up with the name Cynthia Kiss because I love electropop. So the idea of a synthesizer, ah. um, but spelling the traditional name Cynthia with an S um, just to kind of, you know, play on that. And then Kiss is, you know. A little smooch because I'm a flirt. <laughs>
1: as and that obviously is what you convey when you're on the <laughs> stage as well. I think that'd be fair to say yes.
7: Absolutely. We're a good time gal. So are you gonna be performing at this event? Absolutely. I'm going to kick off the day. I'm going to open, and then I'll be hosting with the mosting, and then I'll do a closing number, and then head over to BC Place for the Pride match.
1: And I want to talk about community, which is obviously um, something that's near and dear to your heart, designated as the nonprofit partner for the match. Can you explain to the listeners a little bit about what community does?
7: I mean, community is proving to everyone that we can come together as a collective and stand up for our rights. There's something to be said about visibility at all times, especially, like I said, when we see what's happening in the States, you know, drag is being... Try, it's, it's trying to be put away with and so we have to come together and show that we're a united front and community you know we bridge gaps with our straight allies together we're greater than the sum of our parts do you find like you
1: that's the second time you've referenced what's going on in the states and i think we're all aware of what's going on but we've also had a little friction here at home in vancouver or at least throughout the lower mainland how has the community been able to handle that and if anything has it strengthened you guys
7: I love that you suggest that because, in many ways, it has. We come together stronger than ever when things are being put at risk. And so, it's unfortunate that it has to be a reason to come together, such as that. But, you know, we got to do what we got to do. It's no time like the present. So, I think sometimes it can be those troubling moments that bring a community together. And I think the one thing that I've,
1: you know, wanted to convey here is this is an opportunity to learn. This is an opportunity to celebrate. But there's not necessarily an agenda behind this event. This is more just energy. This is getting ready for a big game. And this is just sharing in the celebration.
7: Honey, I haven't had an agenda since elementary school. (laughs) <laughs> no agenda here just a good time drinks are five dollars the event is free what's not to love yeah
1: agreed it is a 19 plus event we will say that but um one thing that i can say is that i hope you guys are flamboyant i hope you don't hold anything back and again i'm really impressed that the white caps in the face of even in the sporting community where certain leagues are starting to pull back that the white caps stepped forward so i i wish you guys nothing but success cynthia and thank you for once again making a little time for me this morning
7: Oh, I'll be back, I'm sure.
1: Good. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you very much, Cynthia. <laughs> Cynthia Kiss, host for Caps and Queens and a contestant on season two of Canada's Drag Race. I would highly recommend this. I used to work at a bar that had drag shows, and boy, there's nothing like it. And the, the crowd is into it. They get behind it. Some of the uh, queens will, you know, look like, you know, for example, Cher or Britney Spears. But you've also got some that march to their own drum and come up with just this unbelievable look that really makes for an exciting show. I hope that you go down to BC Place and uh, support this. So, again, Caps and Queens, free event to, to uh, well, it's actually open to ages 19 plus. And, again, as mentioned, drinks starting At just five dollars, how are the Whitecaps doing? By the way, well, they come into this match unbeaten in their last nine home games, dating all the way back to March the 11th. Seattle, by the way, over the same stretch, one, two, and three—one win, two losses, three draws—in their last six matches. So they're scuffling. And by the way, Seattle, for as good as they've been over their last several years, haven't won in Vancouver. Knock on wood since 2018.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm paying for Simi. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. wherever I find you. So the government came out, the provincial government came out the other day and said, you know what? We're going to give a significant amount of money to help build rehabilitation centers for our First Nations communities here in the West. Twenty million dollars. And the question that many are asking this morning is, is that enough? To speak about that and a couple other issues as well, Richard Jock, Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Authority. Richard, good morning. Good morning. Well, first and foremost, I I never want to look a gift horse in the mouth when somebody is, you know, willing to invest millions into, you know, hopefully, you know, health and and betterment. That's obviously a good thing, but I'll, I'll cut right to it. Is $20 million enough for everything that you need here on the West Coast?
8: Thanks. That's a a very um, important question, and I would like to add a little bit of context to that. Please. Uh, Part of um, what uh, enabled this uh, investment, if you would, would be uh, the development of a memorandum of understanding between the federal, provincial, and the governments and First Nations health authorities. And part of it was intended to uh, replace six existing facilities and to build two new ones. So the initial uh, investment was $20 million uh, from each of the organizations I just mentioned. Uh, And in addition to that, the uh, provincial government has recently allocated an additional 30 million, uh, which will go to um, uh, completing those, uh, the construction of those facilities. So um, obviously over the COVID period and with all of the supply issues and so on, uh, the, our original costs uh, went up uh, considerably. Uh, but the overall uh, investment is, I would say, $90 million rather than uh, $20 million.
1: And this, Uh, this this, sorry, Richard, this stretches across Western Canada for that, just for a little perspective. But here in British Columbia, BC, sorry, okay, across BC only. Across BC, let's talk about where these touch points are. I mean, obviously, I would assume we're going to see something of structure built here in Vancouver, but across the province, where would you like to see things really, you know, magnified so that we can get some help into these communities?
8: Um, well, I would say that uh, as we look at the toxic drug crises, that uh, that there are certain hotspots, and I would say one of those is the north. So uh, we have um, uh, two programs up there uh, under construction. One is Carrier Sicani. Uh So we are providing, uh, as part of this overall um, pocket of funding, we're providing funding for about 15 beds. In addition, Carrier-Sakani has secured additional funding uh, for about 30 more beds. Uh, So this would be roughly a 45-bed operation. And also uh, one of the replacement facilities is uh, Northern Spirit in uh, North uh, BC near Dawson Creek. Uh, So that would be a second one uh, in in the north. Uh, Fraser, of course, has considerable... Uh, challenges uh, overall with addictions, uh, and I would say that uh, we are investing in a new center at the AILIS. Um That's a replacement of an existing uh, facility, uh, and then there's an additional center uh, being built uh, as well uh, in um, uh, in South Surrey area on a First Nation. So, um, And then in the Vancouver area, there is a site uh, selected for building a a center, uh, but that one uh, is located uh, in uh, Sunshine Coast area. So I would say nothing um, at this point on the line for Vancouver itself, but we have a full list of the uh, eight centers that are under either construction or renovation.
1: Are you a little, uh, so su- I, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, Richard. Are you a little yeah. surprised that there's nothing for the lower mainland in particular?
8: Um, well, I would say that, um, the, um, uh, not surprised. I would say there was a program operating some years ago in Vancouver called Haywinook, uh, that was largely funded by uh, Vancouver coastal health authority with some funding from ourselves. um, but that one um, was discontinued uh, because of operational issues. Uh, but I would say there's more available um, beds in general in the Vancouver area uh, and uh, focus programs. Um, so I, I would say that um, there's some validity uh, for us, at least, to focus on some of the areas outside of Vancouver.
1: I think that's a really great point because I know that we do put a focus on the lower mainland. But just you telling me of all these different touch points throughout the province that need help and need assistance, um, it actually paints a, a bit of a picture of positivity, like the things are starting to get done. And I appreciate you clarifying the number of millions that's being injected into this. So, Richard, thank you for this this morning. I wish you had more time to flesh this out, but I think you brought some great points and hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you. It's My pleasure. Richard Jock, Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Authority. And uh, I'm really glad that I asked that question because to get that kind of uh, insight is, is, is really valuable for me. We always assume that the crux is here in the Lower Mainland, but to think that the Sunshine Coast is going to get help, the island's going to get help, the interior's going to get help, and northern Canada is going to get some assistance as well is a big deal. And uh, when we ask, is, quote, that money enough, it's never going to be enough To take it on full bore. But the fact is, when you think of all these different communities that are coming together and bringing millions to the table, uh, it is at least trending in the right direction. So I do have to tip my cap to the government when it comes to this particular initiative.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Good morning, Vancouver. Hope you're doing well or wherever you're listening. I always try to think where people might be listening in their commute. Maybe they're on the 99, Highway 1. Maybe you're just weaving. Well, you're not dropping your kids off anymore unless it's for summer camp or something along those lines. Maybe you're in the line for the dental chair as well, which is uh, where you can listen to some radio. Um, Wherever I find you, I hope you're doing well. The unemployment rate in Canada, as I mentioned just before we went to the break, is up a little bit. It's the highest in over a year, up from 5.2 back in May. It is now sitting at 5.4. But despite the increase in the unemployment rate, The Canadian economy added 60,000 jobs in June, which exceeds economists' estimates and driven by gains in full-time work. So the rise in the unemployment rate can be attributed to more people entering the labour market and good old-fashioned population growth. But to break this down a little bit better than I can, Brenda Bailey, BC's Minister of Job, Economic Development and Innovation. Brenda, good morning. Good morning. Well, let's talk briefly about this, because anytime we see a rise in unemployment rates, we start to look and see where. Canada as a whole, up 0.2 of a percent in June. But in British Columbia, how are we weathering this storm?
9: Um, I would say that this month, it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, you, certainly, the, um, uh, there's a feeling of uncertainty in regards to global inflation and interest rates, and we see that a bit reflected in these numbers but it's not a dramatic um, change that we're seeing. It's it's very um, a very mild swing. Um, employment is down 2,600 compared to last month. Um, But so far this year, we've added 15,200 jobs. So the economy continues to to fire strong.
1: When you say that the variables on the numbers uh, have to do with, you know, the highs and lows of, you know, full time work and what have you. How much of an impact right now is what's going on down at the ports uh, a problem for you when you're looking at these numbers and, and what what could lie ahead?
9: Yeah, um, well, probably the port numbers and the implications aren't reflected in these numbers uh, yet. Um, but certainly, you know, there's no question our ports play an absolutely critical role in British Columbia and frankly across Canada. I mean, they're, they're the gateway for trade and uh, both import and export. And um, B.C. is a, a trade-involved economy. So um, this strike will have a significant impact in B.C., and um, we're very interested in seeing um, all parties get back to the table. Of course, this is a federal jurisdiction. Courts are within our constitution they um, they fall to Ottawa. Um, but uh, our role is really uh, urging urging both parties to be back at the table.
1: What sector, uh, maybe in the last couple of months, have you seen a rise in where something's maybe returning to levels that you anticipated a couple of years ago? Because I still feel like there's certain industries that are still bouncing back from the COVID years. But is there a sector where you see they're starting to get some traction and stability?
9: Yeah, we do see a little bit of bouncing around still, as you've described. But something that I would highlight uh, in the numbers that uh, I'm seeing this morning is, um, the largest gains here are really in healthcare. care. Uh, Health and social assistance is up by 8,200 jobs. And uh, that's not an accident. Um, I know that our, our Minister of Health has been you know, deeply devoted to um, a- attracting uh, nurses and doctors to British Columbia and ensuring that folks have those opportunities from within B.C., um, and seeing eight thousand two hundred added to uh, to healthcare and social assistance, I think is uh, a good news story for British Columbians. Yeah, British Columbians, and uh, we're also seeing manufacturing up five thousand five hundred, which is a good number as well.
1: Uh, can you flesh that out a little bit? Manufacturing, what which in particular has seen um, a little bit of a spike?
9: Yeah, don't have it broken down by categories. so manufacturing is a, a fairly large category, but I'll give you an example. Um, We've been really focused on helping incentivize manufacturing in the regions in particular, um, especially as we've seen some of our our, um, curtailments of mills in in the forestry industry. Of course, forestry is always going to be really deeply important to British Columbia and our sustainable forests are important to us. We also want to make sure that as there are downturns, that people who live in those communities have opportunities to well-paying jobs. So we've built out something called our manufacturing jobs plan, which is Um, $180 million and businesses can apply for up to $10 million or 20% of a project and some folks are from forestry who are using it to transition to value add. Um, For example, we saw The premier in uh, Williams Lake a couple of weeks ago announcing a new project up there that's funded out of that program, and that's creating 70 new manufacturing jobs. So as we're um, uh, announcing more of the funding that comes forward, we're going to see those manufacturing job numbers go even further up.
1: Minister Bailey, I thank you for that explanation and for your time this morning. I hope you have a great weekend.
9: It's been great talking
0: with you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm Rob Fade for Simi, Good morning. I've had five texts during the commercial break about, yes, you can dance to seal. I am not having this conversation. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to bait me into it. I've had my say. I'm moving on. And we're going to talk about things that I think matter. <laughs> so a question that I asked just before we went to the break is how did we start measuring hours in a day? Oh, I know what you're thinking. This is up there with the question of, you know, the human head weighs eight pounds. But no, seriously, how did we get to measuring hours in a day for this and much more? Dr. Sarah Simmons, professor of interdisciplinary science and an associate member of the departments of history, physics and astronomy at McMaster University, joins me. Doctor, good morning. Hello, Rob. Well, let's get to the basics, because I think this has got a lot of forks in the road as we have this conversation. But in its simplest terms, to all of us listening, how did we start measuring hours in a day?
5: Well, I think, first of all, we had to have developed the need to divide the day into different periods. Uh, The day itself, sunrise to sunset very, very obvious when it's, when it's light outside, this is a new day. But when did we start thinking that we actually needed to divide it into more than just you know, like early in the day, to around the middle of the day, to late in the day, down to, okay, we need time periods, we need a set number of them, and we all need to agree. Uh, so first of all, there must have been a need for that. Um, and then once the need had arisen, then we can start talking about means and methods.
1: I would imagine that the star and the sun had something to do with it at one point. I would assume, and this is just maybe simple logic, but you're looking at someone like the ancient Egyptians, you're looking at people from abroad, because you say that people had to get together on this to make sure that there was a quote, need, but I I, I just, I'm still dumbfounded as to how we get into, you know, a a 12 hour day period, a 12 hour night period. How did we come to this conclusion?
5: Well, here we have to look a long way back in history and we're a little bit hampered because we can only look back as far as we have records um, or continuous oral traditions. So ancient Egypt is a great place to look because we have written records that remain from four, four and a half thousand years ago. And we can look at what people were saying and people were writing. So, if we look back about four and a half thousand years ago, um, we're looking at the hieroglyphic text, the Egyptian hieroglyphic text of a very, very early age. We find that there is a word that is used in the very first body of literature: the word Wenut, which continued to be used all the way through ancient e- Egyptian culture. So. We know what the meaning of it was later on, so we can sort of like guess that this meaning is almost the same all the way back. That word when is translated into other languages as our. So Uh... when we look at that word, it gives us a clue the way it's written in hieroglyphs, the little picture writing, has not only phonetic value, but also hieroglyphic signs that give us the meaning of the word. And the meaning sign for the word it was... A star. So that gives us a clue that this word wenut, which came to be used for time periods, originally was associated with stars, and therefore probably hours of the night first, which I think is really fascinating, because we might think that the most obvious thing to do first is divide the daylight time. That doesn't seem to be what happened in ancient Egypt.
1: Well, you know, and I've got a couple of texts on this already, so I'm just going to throw them at you and you can have your say on it. But um, daylight savings has always been a, a, a bone of contention when it comes to those who think it's right, because we get a couple hours, or, or pardon me, an hour later for sun and what have you, and then we take it back in the fall. Is that something that you eventually think will fall by the wayside?
5: Oh, I personally, I'd be very happy if it fell by the wayside. But the important thing about that is that... Um, it has to be an agreement. We have you know, a whole, a whole country has to, have to make that decision or, or a whole community, maybe province by province, or uh, you can imagine the conversations like this in the past would be sort of like, Oh, our village does it this way. And, um, (laughs) When you start talking a lot to the next village, then, then you have to say, well, we have to decide how we both do it, if we both do it different ways. And then as your sort of worldview gets bigger, you have to have more and more agreement. And, of course, now that we're totally global, uh, these things are these things are big decisions to make. Anybody who's ever tried to schedule a, a call across a couple of different time zones knows that they have to bear all this in mind. And the different times that people change their daylight savings, hours it's very, very difficult. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're all a little bit over it by now, uh, and would like to just keep as much of the same time as we, as we can.
1: Doctor, I'm going to throw a real quick question at you. I wish we had more time. I feel like we could do two or three segments on this. <laughs> Will artificial intelligence eventually change the way we look at time?
5: I think everything changes the way we look at time. Going back to what I said earlier about the need, um, Back in ancient Egypt, they obviously had a need for hours. Um, They didn't have minutes and seconds, but we need minutes and seconds. And in sport, for example, we need thousands of seconds to be able to distinguish between uh, two competitors. So we're constantly changing our relationship with time. And any new technology that comes up, like AI, could very well have unforeseen ramifications of the way that we perceive time, measure it, and use it.
1: I love it. What a great conversation. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate you doing this for me. And let's cross paths again, shall we? At a different time. <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. you. Have a wonderful day. Dr. Sarah Simmons, professor of uh, interdisciplinary science and an associate member in the departments of history, physics and astronomy at McMaster University. I don't think she was going to be impressed that I have a high school diploma from Lester B. Pearson in Toronto. <laughs> she was in school a little bit longer than I will.